0: Welcome to the Minerals and Royalties Podcast, the home of CEOs and investors in the minerals and royalty space. Hey guys, this is your host Tim Powell from the Minerals and Royalties Council. I recently sat down with Jason Heusiger, former president of Rock Ridge Royalty and president of newly formed Mustang Ridge Minerals, on the heels of the recent combination between Rock Ridge Royalty. And desert peak minerals in the delaware basin jason wanted to come on to the podcast to walk through the rock ridge story and what his team has planned for the future with mustang ridge minerals let's jump into the episode and hear more of what jason had to say jason welcome to the podcast thanks for taking time to do this yeah, thank you, Tim. I appreciate you having me on here. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we're we're kind of getting together here on short notice on the heels of the recent combination announcement with Desert Peak and Rockridge. So you built the Rockridge portfolio and have some great insights there and are, are going to talk about a little bit of that, a little bit of you know what you have going on forward and some insights on how you think the mineral space is going to look in the future. So very timely episode here. I appreciate you coming on and reaching out to us.
1: Yeah. Thank you guys. And it is certainly a great day for the Rockers team. And, and you know, I think it's a great day for minerals and royalties in the Permian Basin. seems to be very exciting times. And from what I can see of the market, I think this is the beginning of a of a good time period where hopefully we can make up for some lost time in 2020.
0: No, I am to that. I mean, what's unique about the mineral space, I think anytime there's a transaction, anytime someone raises capital, because we're relatively in the early stages of what the minerals and royalties asset class looks like long term everyone wins from that right it's the tide rises all boats as to use that old adage so i agree with you and and this will be the first of many and uh, you know is a trend that we'll get into later on consolidation and mergers and everything to get scale but before we get into that let's let's put a pause on on rockridge and desert peak and a little background on yourself, personally, for those who don't know you. I think just uh, walk down memory lane: where you grew up, wh- where you went to school, and were you an oil and gas guy from the get-go? Were you in finance, uh, and then how you ended up hanging your hat in in the mineral space?
1: Yes, and you know, I, I often joke with people. I think I am the only person from Midland whose family wasn't directly in the oil and gas business. So growing up, certainly uh, knew all the right people. I just didn't know. <laughs> You know, what context that I really knew them in until, you know, I finished up at Texas Tech. I came back to Midland right after school, started looking around for a job. And, you know, everyone was becoming landmen and they were paying, you know, pretty dang good rates at the time. Uh, And I guess this was back in 2004, 2005. So I did some land work in the courthouse, kind of learned a few things and started out in Roswell, New Mexico, which was an experience in and of itself um, but pretty quickly on, I was doing some contract work, and Chesapeake was a client. We were leasing in Ward County. And, you know, back in those days, I knew Chesapeake would lease for 500 an acre was kind of the most they would pay. And I was signing everybody up for like 200 or 250 an acre. And I thought to myself, man, you know, I'm making a pretty decent day rate at like 200 right now per day. Uh, but if I could find some way to own these leases and sell them to Chesapeake, I could really make some money. And, of course, you know, I finally got up the courage to do it and went to New Mexico first and then, you know, jumped the river where I didn't have any conflict of interest with working for Chesapeake and started leasing in Reeves. And along the way, you know, I took some crazy risk in the early days and, you know, I didn't even fully appreciate the risk I was taking. Uh, But along the way, I met some really good guys that helped me kind of figure out how to do that and uh, do it successfully. So, you know, fast forward, you know, spent some time aggregating leasehold in the Delaware Basin in the very early days. And I added it up the other day and I think we had a total of 135,000 acres under lease at one time in the core of the core. Of you know, we called it the Wolfbone play at the time, but Delaware Basin Wolf Camp.
0: This is late 2000s, then, just to keep the timeline.
1: Oh yes, Uh, sorry. So we you know really started doing that around 2009 into 2010. It seems like 2010, 11 to 12 were you know pretty prosperous years as far as aggregating leasehold and you know selling it to different operators out in the Delaware Basin.
0: Hey guys, I wanna take a quick break from the conversation to let you know that the Minerals and Royalties Council will be hosting our North Dam Royalties Assembly on October 13th in Houston. In addition to the networking and panel discussions throughout the day, we're gonna be hosting our first ever Minerals and Royalties Awards Dinner, where we're gonna be honoring Darren Zanovich, president of Mason Minerals Partners as our Minerals Executive of the Year. In addition, we're gonna have five other awards, including Transaction of the Year, Investor of the Year, Aggregator of the Year, Disruptive Technology of the Year, and last but not least, Kitchen Table War Story of the Year. If you're interested in learning more about how you can participate, including ticket registration, taking a dinner table, and general sponsorship, then please send me an email at tim.powell at energycouncil.com. Thanks. Now let's jump back into the episode. So we did an episode with the Leon brothers and Willie Malloy over at Tilden Capital, and they entered the Delaware, I want to call it 2015-ish. And and bought some stuff on their own account, and then started buying for Pegasus. And you know, they were quote unquote early movers, right, for the Delaware. They felt it was there. There wasn't as much attention there from a minerals buying perspective. They were able to get a lot of great deals early on and chunkier deals because the leases were more consolidated versus the fragmentation you see in, in the Midland Basin. What were you kind of seeing in the cause you're talking about an earlier time frame and I know you're talking leasehold, but a lot of parallels between leasehold and, and minerals buying when you're wearing a land hat, right? So love for you to kind of pick up on that. Sorry to cut you off.
1: Oh no. And you know, that's exactly where I was going because you're one hundred percent right. We are having to, you know, spend a bunch of energy figuring out who owns the minerals. And we're making the same phone call, you know, whether we're buying to or calling to lease them or buy from them, you know, it's hey, you own the minerals, you want to lease them? Well, what would you think about selling them too? And so, I think my first official Reeves County lease that I ever took on my own, you know, for my own company was back in 2007, and we started buying minerals, you know, 2008, 2009. And it's funny, if you look at the way we buy minerals now versus the way we did it back then, it is completely different. There weren't even wells out there for us to be able to really get you know, a multiple of current revenue checks or anything like that. So we were saying, okay, they're drilling these vertical wells, and we think they're going to make 50,000 barrels in the first year. So you know, we want to work out the math where we basically get paid out in two wells when we buy these minerals. So we were buying at much cheaper rates, obviously. You know, minerals didn't have the value back then that they do now, but, uh, you know, just kind of picking them up here and there as we went along. And the main goal absolutely was aggregating the leasehold and trying and get that to operators. But back in those days, we were still figuring out where the boundary was and, you know, really what was going on in the Midland Basin was the vertical Wolfberry development where, you know, you drill a vertical well, a big frack job in the wolf camp and then you'd add the spray berry to it to give it steady long life reserves even though they may only add five or ten barrels from the spray berry you know it when coupled with the real flashy hyperbolic decline of the wolf camp it, it made that possible and we had the idea that it could happen in the Delaware Basin as well and you know some of the partners that I was working with at the time were really some of the first movers and had the geological ideas to try out there and You know, those were sold to like the Browning guys and J. Cleo Thompson in the early days. So um, just by nature of some relationships that I had out there and guys I was working on these leasehold projects with, I got exposure to a lot of the early wells. And so we were using the same geological concepts and saying, hey, if if this acreage that J. Cleo Thompson is drilling over here is good, then all this other acreage should be good. And, And that's really how we continue to add acreage over the years in the early days of the Delaware Basin. And, you know, all that early experience and those relationships built with landowners is why um, I think Rockridge worked out and why they wanted me to be a part of Rockridge, my Primex partners in Blackstone Private Equity, just because I'd spent so many years out there, knew so many people, and, you know, had a reputation for at least getting things done with mineral owners and, and providing value to them along the way.
0: And the, the entity you were buying on your own account, you called it Masterson? Is, is that the name of the, the entity you were leasing up the minerals and, and the, the acreage under or just to some context? And then when did the relationship with, with Blackstone form? Like when was that transition?
1: Yeah. Well, so we're starting to lease in 2007. And like I said, you know, buying minerals where we can along the way, not in any kind of organized, consistent manner, just opportunistically. Buying and flipping leases under Arabella Petroleum, bought minerals under Arabella Minerals and Royalties. But we didn't really get professional about buying minerals until Masterson Royalty Fund came along in 2013. We ended up selling that to Viper, in 2017. And I've got a a really neat story about that I heard the other day. I'll circle back to it in just a moment. But we were flipping the leasehold, you know, all the way up until late 2012. And in my mind, you know, we were putting together these blocks and there weren't very many blocks left to put together. And of course, PE companies, EMP companies, they love blocky acreage because at the time they could drill one or two wells, they could delineate all the benches And then they could go sell it for a gigantic multiple to Oxy or one of the big groups out there. Well, you know, as you got later into 2012, the big blocks were gone. And so we were running across a half section or a section kind of here and there. They were scattered, and you couldn't block them up into a nice contiguous block. But, you know, in my mind, they had more value because there were wells drilled offsetting these, you know, one-off tracks. And they had de-risked it geologically quite a bit, but the market wasn't paying me more for them. So uh, in 2012 to 2015, I got the bright idea that I was gonna operate some wells. And quite frankly, I really didn't like my experience. I don't think it really turned out that well. Um, But I had some experience as an operator drilling some of the first-generation Wolf Camp horizontals out there. So all that stuff kind of goes in, and I, I give it to you as context of how I entered professional mineral buying in the Delaware Basin and kind of all the relationships and avenues I had available to, me, available to me getting started in the early days. And like I said, we started Masterson Royalty Fund in 2013, and I was working with a, a long-term partner at the time. And really what happened was we had acquired all these little one-off mineral tracks throughout the core of the play over the, you know, preceding couple of years. And we look up and we're like, shoot, you know, we've got $10 million dollars worth of minerals that we can't really afford to hold any longer. We better get some partners. So we went out to some, you know, kind of friends and family and existing investors around the Midland area and it branched out a little bit into the Dallas contacts that we had at the time. And we sold the minerals at cost to the partnership. And the idea was, hey, we're never going to sell these. We're going to hold them forever. Our grandkids are going to be glad we bought these because the play continues to get better and better. Operators are figuring stuff out. They're transitioning from vertical wells to horizontals. And, you know, the play was just one of those things that kept getting better as time went on. So, uh, you know, we transferred the minerals into the partnership around 2013. It was $10 million. And we basically just took in revenue, signed new leases. We distributed out. All the revenues to the partners and operated it for a few years. And then, you know, into 2016, we started getting some interest from some people who were interested in buying and didn't even really run a formal process like you see today, just talking to some groups. And it turned out we're sitting on something with a whole lot of value. And I don't even think we fully appreciated how much the value had increased on us over those you know, three and a half years that we had been managing the partnership. And so um, at the end of 2016 is when I went over to work with uh, my partners at PrimeX on a new venture that we called Rockridge, backed by Blackstone Private Equity and some other partners. And uh, we had a deal kind of on the 10-yard line. I handed it off to my partners on Masterson Royalty Fund. They got the transaction closed, got a great deal, and we ended up, you know, basically uh, a little over tripling our original investment. Uh, We held back a couple properties, and Masterson was a big success. And and I told you I was going to circle back to this story, but I guess it was right before COVID we were at Rockridge, and we were talking to the Tenote guys who I respect a lot, and I really like what they're doing on the smaller transaction size and the mineral and royalty space out in the Permian. But hearing those guys talk about how they got into the mineral space and the marketed transactions that they're running, you know, they kind of tie everything back to the Masterson Royalty sale to uh, Viper. And what they'll tell you is, you know, that was the first sale where people really started seeing that, hey, this can be done professionally. You can get professional values and you can make institutional type investments into the mineral royalty space and have an avenue to exit out of them at decent values over time. So, I don't even know if they remembered that I had anything to do with Masterson at the time. But, you know, for me sitting there, it it was a source of personal pride. And I don't say that to be haughty at all. I just thought that was really neat that back in the day, we thought we saw some value in something and we sold the idea to some partners and it it turned out to be a great deal for everybody.
0: Yeah, it kind of set precedent of, hey, you can build a minerals portfolio and exit it to institutional capital, whereas before it was carving stuff out for a personal war chest or flipping it at the bottom end of the market and you know viper changed a lot of things right Uh, i want to say prairie sky ipo'd first and then viper followed shortly thereafter or vice versa but that definitely got my attention the reason the minerals platform we have today exists is noticing the viper deal and saying wow you know the scale and the multiples associated with this are there's something here and you know over A period of years and slowly growing our platform where it is to where it is today right so i think that was a defining moment for the space for sure and an inflection point that changed it and changed the players and the process and the strategy for sure right
1: uh, I think you're right. And you know, the anecdote that I tell everybody is, you know, when we started buying minerals, you know, professional mineral buyers were guys who went to work every day in flip-flops and Hawaiian shirts. They were sending out, you know, twenty, thirty thousand 30,000 letters a week to all over the country just trying to buy stuff. And now you look at these uh, private equity-backed teams, it is night and day difference. And you've seen a, you know, incredible maturation of, of this slice of the industry Just in that kind of five-year run-up between, you know, call it 2015 to 2020, it's amazing how professional everybody got in such a quick amount of time.
0: Hey, guys. I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Opportune LLP for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leading global energy business advisory firm, Opportune is well-positioned to provide world-class technical, financial, and operational capabilities to minerals and royalties companies. Whether it's back office outsourcing, resource and reserve definition, land due diligence and administration, GIS mapping, valuation work, data and system integration, financial reporting, tax advisory, or buy and sell side assistance, Opportune LLP has got you covered. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. I also wanna say thank you to Noble Royalties, who's been a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997. With the ever-changing landscape of the energy industry, Noble's team urges EMPs, mineral funds, and private families to rethink how they buy and sell their minerals. Noble's legacy and experience will assist in delivering effective solutions to EMPs and private owners alike on how to best maximize their mineral ownership in this ever-changing market. If you're interested in having a conversation about what might be the best solution for your company, fund, or family, then please reach out to Chase Morris at c.morris@nobleroyalties.com. at or Shannon Manor at smanner at nobleroyalties.com. Lastly, I'd like to take a moment to thank Enverus, a leading energy SaaS company that has software platforms designed to empower oil and gas companies through analytics and highly technical insights. Mineralsoft is Enverus's mineral management platform that enables owners to capture missing revenue and maximize the value of their minerals portfolios. EnergyLink is Enverus's platform for automating joint venture and owner relations business processes. If you're interested in learning more about Enveris, MineralSoft, and EnergyLink, then please visit www.enveris.com or email businessdevelopment at Thanks. Now let's jump back into the episode. So I'm just curious, you really have already mentioned relationships as a major driver for how you've acquired the minerals. Where did the, the PrimeX and the Blackstone relationship originate? Did you know the PrimeX management team was there some sort of connection to the partners at Blackstone Energy Partners? How did that all come together? Or were you looking for scale and private equity and did the rounds and then just ended up gelling with, with the Blackstone team? Just curious, any background there?
1: So it was late 2016. Uh, I'd been out in the Delaware for a while, but Primix really had two. And you know, I don't think anyone really realizes kind of who the first players were. Browning certainly J. Cleo Thompson certainly, but you had a number of groups who were in the Bria Draw deal, and you know I don't know if you remember back to when Oxy bought Bria Draw from J. Cleo Thompson. I think it was like a a billion dollar price tag at the time, but actually not long before that, maybe nine months before, Primax had a deal to buy all of that. They brought on some investors, and were going to buy out their other partners and take over the whole block. And they actually bid a little bit more than what Oxy bid, if my memory serves me, it's been a while ago. So forgive me if I get some of the details wrong. But in their closing period, oil had this freak deal. It was cruising along eighty-five to ninety and it had this, you know, maybe six week dip below seventy-five. And for whatever reason, you know, Primex didn't get the deal closed then, and then it later goes on to uh, to sale to Oxy. But Primex had been involved in the play almost from the beginning, uh, drilling the vertical wells, kind of south and east of the town of Pecos out there that everyone, you know, thinks is the genesis of this play. So they've been out there. I've been out there doing several things. I actually talked to Tom Bagadell, who was the Primex CEO, who I think is like a living legend as it pertains to the Delaware Basin. But uh, talking to Tom and say, hey, I've got these minerals. And Tom's like, well, why don't you come in and, and show it to the team? So, you know, silly me, I walk into their office and it's just me and some maps. And Thinking I'm going to talk about a mineral deal and and the, the whole team files in it's like twelve against one and I'm thinking what is it my, I get myself into but what, really what it was is that ended up being a great conversation about minerals out here and I didn't know this but they had just closed the deal with Blackstone Private Equity to refinance some debt that they had and give them enough capital to really start developing the 40,000 acres they've acquired kind of in that central Reeves County area. And, you know, I'm still not 100% sure how it came about, but the story that I heard was almost as an afterthought to the Primex-Blackstone deal. Primex says, hey, you know, do you guys want some money to buy minerals? And they said, sure, we'd we'd love to. And so they kind of hammered out the details to do the mineral investment that became Rockridge. Primex just didn't have the bandwidth to execute on it. And this was only, you know, a couple months before I came in to see Primex themselves and you know, through the course of talking about this one deal and kind of going through my, uh, you know, firing squad interview program, uh, we decided, hey, you know, let's work on this together and and let's stand up a team and and get out there and do it. And, you know, to me, that's the biggest accomplishment of Rockridge is we truly just started with a blank sheet of paper and a commitment. And we had the benefit of, you know, the Primex technical team and some really smart guys on that end. And, you know, we started under the Primex footprint, but Quickly started to diversify out of their footprint to try and put together what we think is a a small index of the Delaware Basin.
0: You know, around that time frame, the line of sight partnership, specifically with NPE, started to become more vogue. I think Long Point Four Point didn't necessarily, you know, Long Point didn't necessarily buy into the drill bit of Four Point, but they did have the the shared resources and bringing technical capabilities to the table and sharing that you know mesa minerals who just exited that was 2018 so that was a couple years later tug hill stone hill was around 2016 if i'm not mistaken so that starts to become a strategy that the others adopt i'm just if you can take me back to those days when you're meeting with the team and everything was that were you guys modeling something you had saw or was it kind of you know smart smart minds think alike and you saw an opportunity to the synergies of sharing the drill schedule and technical teams and everything and, and skill sets to then scale and buy minerals more effectively?
1: Well, you know, I like to think of it as an all-star team plus Jason. And really what it is, is so there's a geologist and there's a few geologists and all of them are fantastic, but there's one in particular at Primex named Ryan Mirsky, who just really had a handle on this kind of Southwest part of the play where, you know, at the time it looked like Primax was stepping out a bit and, you know, kind of TBD, how the geology turns out down in this corner. And, you know, Ryan was right. And the wells are, are great by almost anyone's measure when you start looking around at some of the wells drilled out there. And so, you know, we felt like we knew the geology better than anyone else in that kind of mid to southern part of the play. And, you know, because it was a little bit off the beaten path, as far as everybody's perceptions, you know, we were getting better deals down there. So we didn't go in there with a set plan or anything. A lot of it was just getting Blackstone and our board of managers some comfort. You know, what they want to do is see how that it's a easy, no-brainer addition to what they're already doing. So as opposed to stacking risks, they want to look like they're, you know, buying risks down. So we walked through the uh, opportunities that we had underneath the Primex footprint. We also looked at all of the offsetting minerals that became available to us. And we're still focused at that time down in the southern part. And then as we build some confidence and we get some great deals, that gives us the uh, ability to start looking up north where the prices are higher. But we're able to leverage some of the operating relationship that Primex has. You know, We're looking to diversify under other operators and you know, areas that have subtly different geology that we feel like we have an understanding on. So I think that's pretty typical if you look at Stonehill, Tug Hill, and Long Point, Four Point, just groups like that, Fortis, Felix. Uh, it seems like everyone kind of got started right under the operated properties. And then they either built some confidence or just became more bullish on the market altogether and started expanding outside of that footprint. And that's very much what happened with uh, Rockridge Primex.
0: Well, a lot of times what you see you know as as we start to to help folks get in touch with investors as they're raising funds you know investors like to see cash flow and you you can fund gna out of cash flow and you have that that asset base that is you know the the foundation of the strategy and maybe you bring in hedging strategies whatever the expertise of the teams um, approach is you have, you know, what, what you're talking about is buying minerals where you have a competitive advantage under the drill bit and you get that foundation to then maybe step out and you can maybe take some undeveloped risk because you have some near term stuff coming into cash flow or stuff that is in cash flow. And it's the same type of concept and it it's, you know, downside risk protection, right, to, to get the portfolio started. So I think I think it makes sense that that's the form that most of these groups started with.
1: Yeah, you're right and I I don't want to give up any of Rockridge's secrets, but you know, my personal philosophy has been number one it's developed over time, especially from the early days of, you know, looking at minerals like how many barrels of oil need to be produced before I pay out my investment and really ROI focused without any timing component to, you know, what it is now, which is really model driven. And when you understand a discounted cash flow model, you know commodity price is a big mover, no doubt about it. Uh, especially when we get close to the break-even spot for a lot of these operators. But really, you know what we think is the toughest thing to peg that has the biggest impact is that pace of development feature. And so that that got me looking really hard into the data that makes up the. I like to call it a drill cadence, if you will, but just you know the average time between well events on a particular track, so you can go through and set up your model and bring on those cash flows correctly over time. But that's also like why we like to spread out our investments over you know a large enough sample set where the law of averages can kick in and help you out with that. But um, you know you're really right when you have certainty that development is going to happen in the short run; it starts to get cash flows coming in. And that lets you take some more risk and kind of let that law of averages work out for you. So you can go make other investments and spread out from there. And maybe that's what happened. Maybe people just got bullish. But uh, that's the more sophisticated answer that I I think some of our private equity brethren might give you over the phone.
0: Talk to me a little bit about the portfolio you guys built. And this is kind of looping back to you know why we jumped on this, right? To talk about the combination of Desert Peak and Rockridge. So what was the the commitment that Blackstone gave you guys and you guys did a lot of blocking and tackling, so average transaction size and, and the number of transactions, you did everything wholesale on the ground, right? There there was no, from my understanding, no marketed packages, nothing nothing that was aggregated for you. You guys did it all direct, and that was part of the formula to get the returns for your partners.
1: Oh, th- that's right. And, and again, I don't want to get into too many specifics that may be confidential, but if you go look in the courthouse, what you're going to see is it was over 200 transactions, and Know, total net acres when you run those out in the courthouse, you're talking you know right around twenty thousand. You know we have, I think two tracks in New Mexico, but pretty much every everything except for those two tracks are in Loving and Reeves County. And you're right, you know that's one thing you'll see in looking at the deeds in the courthouse, you know there weren't big marketed transactions through investment bankers. We, we're very price disciplined. Uh, I'm very proud of the team that they kept the standards all the way through. Um We knew to get the prices that we wanted to pay. We had to do things different, and you know to me, that's one of the main philosophies that I learned, and you know it really started with my experience at Masterson and kind of experimenting with some stuff there. I took that same philosophy, I scaled it up certainly at Rockridge. But even since uh, Rockridge and my personal investments and, and Mustang Ridge, which I'm doing now and I'd love to tell you about in a moment, you know, we're just refining those same principles. And you know, it's, it's not a really complicated stuff, but it's amazing how effective it is. And so if someone says, hey, Jason, what's the secret recipe to buying good minerals or, or minerals at a fair price? I'm going to tell you that two thirds of it is about the relationship that you have with the mineral owners. And one third is, you know, having better data and understanding exactly what that data is telling you. And what I mean by the relationship part of it is, you know, think back to 2017, you have all these newly funded private equity backed teams looking to buy minerals all in the same place, stacked on top of each other. And because there's so much capital there chasing deals, you also have everybody and their brother out there trying to broker deals and get them in the hands of people And so what we found all through that time period is, you know, we'd start working with mineral owners and trying to make deals and the mineral owners didn't know who Rockridge was or or any other group, you know, XYZ mineral buying company. They were all the same as far as they knew. And, you know, everyone had a website. Everybody was new without a long track record or any kind of verifiable history. So if we were going to pay 10,000 an acre, some of these brokers would come along knowing that they never had to put any skin in the game and they would bid it up to 11000 12000 always just over what a legitimate group was willing to pay. And for them, it was a free option because all they were going to do is sign up the mineral owner. They're going to go shop it around town. Hopefully, somebody's going to buy it for the price they have it committed at. But even if they don't, their option expires and the mineral owner has got the minerals back free and clear of any options or paperwork and they can go start the process again. And so it was a tough environment to buy deals. And we th- thought to ourselves, look, we've got to figure this out because, you know, we don't want to, if ever you're winning mineral deals by paying more than the next guy, you know, that should be a little bit of a red flag. You just know that you're in a situation where uh, your emotions can run away with you and your profits all at the same time. So we're like, how can we come up with something better here? And really it came down to what we call the good guy strategy it's just be out there, be on the phone build relationships with these mineral owners and, you know, use the relationship relationships and the trust that you built over time to help them navigate through the process. And in that we knew that, you know, we're gonna help people and they're gonna sell to other people because we're gonna help them understand the value and everything else and, you know, hate to see that happen. But we also knew that we're gonna win the majority of the deals because we were honest and transparent. And we found several ways to test this along the way, but we believed the whole time we were buying about $1,500 per net royalty acres under what the market was by using our good guy approach. And, you know, we might have had a mineral owner who regretted selling at the time that they did because they thought they could have got more, but we never had anyone really upset with us not taking our phone calls or threatening lawsuits or anything like that. And over, you know, 200 plus transactions. I think that's a big feather in our cap that we were able to do that.
0: You had mentioned too on the data side that you kind of how did you describe to me the the intersection of a big data analytics and then kind of precise data analytics and you know I think you need to narrow down who you're going to be the good guy with right and and do that in a in a smart way and I think that's one of the ways the mineral space has evolved over the years without giving away the secret sauce. Just can you elaborate around that? You you had mentioned kind of a a minerals owner scorecard or scoring system that you guys followed internally that probably prompted someone to be more of a likely seller? Uh, So that's correct.
1: And, you know, that's something that we're currently using now. But just for perspective, you know, in the Delaware Basin, and this is just on the Texas side, you know, there's about 12,000 unique individual mineral owners that own in the core of the Delaware Basin Wolf Camp Play. In the Midland Basin, you've got 86,000 unique individual mineral owners out there. And so both of those numbers are large enough where you can start to look and see some trends. You can see that, you know, the average seller is a particular age and has a particular kind of financial background or credit score, average home size. You know, there's all these different things you can look at. And so, um, you know, I really like the idea of thinking of it as big data intersecting precise data, because you can start to see these trends where um, you think you have a pretty accurate picture of what the mineral owner looks like, and I think that's big data in my mind. But what I mean by precise data is you have to turn around and apply that to any particular mineral owners that fit that criteria. And the big data guys, I always think of the guys who pull down like the Google Analytics off the internet and say, you know, it's all metadata with no, you know, human face on the front end traditional mineral buying is all about just precise data. You need to talk to mineral owners in this area. And so the intersection of the two is you're looking at high-level trends, you know, trying to get a little bit smarter using this data stuff, but you're applying it to individual buying opportunities and individual mineral owners. So very big on data. We love it. Even in its best form, it's still like looking in the rear view mirror to a certain degree. So you have to really understand the context of how you're looking at this data and what can be done with it. But I truly think it's it's the way of the world and at least moving forward. And so a lot of the data things that we focus on, like you talked about, we we've, we've now got a mineral owner scoring system that we use and the whole idea behind that is we think, you know, every on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 is like I'm ready to sign a deed right now, 0 is I will never sell in my lifetime. You know, we like to put mineral owners on a certain score. And obviously, you want to run through and get all the 9s and 10s that you can, but you also need to come up with a strategy to move the 6s and 7s and move them closer to 9s and 10s down the road. So when you start breaking apart this stuff and, and looking at how data supports some of these ideas... You can come up with a pretty unique, actionable plan that that helps you accomplish these goals. And and we like that a lot.
0: Hey, guys. I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties, who's been a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997. With the ever-changing landscape of the energy industry, Noble's team urges EMPs, mineral funds, and private families to rethink how they buy and sell their minerals. Noble's legacy and experience will assist in delivering effective solutions to EMPs and private owners alike on how to best maximize their mineral ownership in this ever-changing market. If you're interested in having a conversation about what might be the best solution for your company, fund, or family, then please reach out to Chase Morris at cmorris at or Shannon Manor at smanor at Royalties.com. Need energy industry management experience at your fingertips? Opportune LLP, a leading global energy business advisory firm, has the capabilities needed to overcome your minerals and royalties team's technical, operational, and financial challenges. To learn more, search Opportune's podcast E2B Energy to Business on Apple and Spotify Podcasts, where Opportune examines emerging financial and technology trends and provides a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities, and execute market strategies. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Lastly, I'd like to take a moment to thank Enverus, a leading energy SaaS company that has software platforms designed to empower oil and gas companies through analytics and highly technical insights. MineralSoft is Enverus's mineral management platform that enables owners to capture missing revenue and maximize the value of their minerals portfolios. EnergyLink is Enverus's platform for automating joint venture and owner relations business processes. If you're interested in learning more about Enveris, MineralSoft, and EnergyLink, then please visit www.enverus.com or email businessdevelopment at enverus.com. Thanks. Now let's jump back into the episode. Yeah, I think in general, in any business, not just minerals, if you have some sort of angle or approach to contact someone versus just the blanket cold call, that's always more effective, right? and then when you get into efficiencies of increasing your hit rate and conversion rate and all that, that's good. But if you're calling someone for a specific reason, I think that that increases the chances of building rapport and and trust and all that, right? So that makes sense totally. You you had mentioned briefly, let's expand upon it. So your next venture, Mustang Ridge Minerals. Tell me a little bit more about that. You said you're um, targeting about 50 million in fund size and You know a little bit more about the strategy and and what you're looking to do, and I think why you targeted fifty million dollars fund size because we'll close out the episode on where we see minerals going forward and some of the insights you have, and I think the fund size that you're putting together you think is a better fit versus some of the large large multi hundred million dollar commitments we've seen in the past few years. You felt that was over, you know, they were oversized for some strategies. So I'll, I'll let you elaborate further.
1: Right, and in, in Mustang Ridge Minerals is the new platform that we're working on now. And so we have a lot of interest from former partners, and we are looking to get it signed up and formalized this summer. Um, but we're out there looking at deals now under the Mustang Ridge banner. Uh, it's both in the Delaware and Midland Basin, which is a little bit different than what we did with Rock Ridge. And, and you said it: the target size is $50 million and there's some logic behind that. And, you know, really what I'm thinking as far as the $50 million, if you look at what we've just been through, especially in 2020, but, you know, 2019, the pricing wasn't as strong as we'd hoped for. But we had all of these PE-backed groups come out late 2016, 2017, and everybody had such large commitments. And when you start dealing with private equity money, they like really structured investments where you have a, a set deployment period you've got a maturation period, and then you start looking to exit. In the mineral space, that's tough because you are you have no control over the drill bit at all. You try and buy where you can to maximize your exposure to drill bit, but you're still really passive. And then you have all of the wild swings of the commodity market as well. So $50 million, to me, gets the scale of all the big buyers. Our deal pipeline's pretty stack full right now, but we think when capital starts wading back into the market, you know, $50 million is still enough that we'll see every deal that's out there. But it's small enough where we can get it deployed in a reasonable amount of time, let the market mature, and then look to exit without having to, you know, have a natural buy and hold period of, you know, two or three or four years like some of these larger funds have had in the past. So, you know, hopefully that works out. You know, I feel really strongly that don't want to go too much over it, but don't necessarily want to go too much under it. So I think it's probably a range somewhere around $50 million. But to your point about the, the future of the mineral space, from what I can see, you know, I think that it's going to continue to mature. And I think maybe 12 to 18 months from now, you're going to see a couple more public mineral royalty companies out there. And by a couple, I mean two, possibly three or even four. And I think you see that in the market right now. You've got all these private equity-backed groups and teams with a portfolio that's probably worth a few hundred million dollars. That's certainly big, and there's no buyer who's going to write a check for it right now that I'm seeing, but it's not big enough to go public on its own. So I think you're going to see these guys start to group up into a few different surviving entities. I think you're going to see some IPOs you know, late this year, early next year, into fall of 2022. And hopefully by that time, you know, a holder of any mineral portfolios at that point will have a bunch of different options out there in the public market to sell to. And I think what that specifically does and what we hope to capture with Mustang Ridge is, you know, there's going to be very specific niches for the different players in the market. You're still going to have the guys on the ground hustling up deals, and you're going to have aggregators buying them, of which we hope to be one, hopefully on a little bit larger side, but we'll aggregate the deals into packages and we'll sell them to the large PE guys or the public guys and you know realize our place in the market and i think everyone there'll be plenty of value to be created for each of these roles but that's the role that we like playing in the most right now and i certainly think that the future is going to be very data driven in the mineral and royalty space because it's so passive i think these public guys are going to need to find unique ways to communicate all the aspects of their portfolio to their stakeholders up and down the chain and there's just no way to do that without you know this data that seems to be coming more and more popular every day so uh we'll see if my crystal ball is accurate but that's kind of what I see for the mineral and royalty space through the end of 2022
0: No I I think for the last few years right it's this mystical pension or insurance company that's going to spend a billion dollars for an exit right that everyone's always trying to find and you know they're out there like teachers capital with heritage royalty, they've put quite a bit of money together and they like big chunky deals. But the reality is, is like you had said, if you deploy a certain amount of money, it's almost like the point of no return. You start to narrow down your options and exiting is really difficult. I think pruning a portfolio starts to make sense. But for a lot of the, the cost of capital that is behind these larger portfolios, i.e. private equity, you know, more of a mass exit makes sense. And so the the IPO is the natural story to that, but size matters for minerals, public markets right now. And this is just kind of my comments, but you see what Pegasus is doing. Now it's called NCAP Minerals, right? Rolling up all those portfolios, Desert Peak, the deal they did with, with Desert Royalty, probably a couple of years ago already now, right? And and now this combination with Rockridge, you know, you can see a potential IPO perhaps in the future. And And I just know from private conversations, there's, there's that group of folks that are, that are big, but not big enough to go public. And they're all talking to each other um, and just they're seeing what's possible and what synergies make sense. And, and so I, I would agree with you that we have a new class of public companies this time next year, right? Now, one thing I, I'd love, just kind of food for thought, Jason, I just want to chop it up with you. When you're talking about the public space, there's a quote unquote junior market that's evolved in in Toronto in London to a lesser extent in ASX Australia Stock Exchange and you know putting on my energy council hat for a minute over the years you've had juniors kind of go in and with small market caps they they see an opportunity in the market and they they kind of de-risk it and prove it up and then and then a larger company acquires them and and then they would do it again and do it again that market shrunk but you know i think we'll come back at some point in the future when commodity cycles reset themselves right and that kind of model is it makes more sense where where i'm getting with this is is the aim markets the asx markets and the tsx markets are smaller and have a different mix of investors do you think there's room for a 50 to 100 million dollar market cap public company that's listed in toronto or australia or london that basically does what a small family office PDP buyer would do, but you get access to public markets, just kind of something I've been noodling on uh, and deducting from conversations. I just wonder, why not, right? It happened in Upstream, and then those could almost be public feeders that get aggregated by other pubcos in the US, NASDAQ and and NICE, that need to be a billion plus. Any thoughts there?
1: Yeah, no, I think that it goes exactly to what we want to do with Mustang Ridge. I think that the market's going to be, you know, really niche and I absolutely think there's a place for, you know, when when you tell me about these, you know, non-US public companies buying this, you know, 100 million dollar packages, which is really sizable you know, what it sounds like to me is those guys are aggregators and they just aggregate on a larger level. That's why I like that strategy right now, because I don't know that I want to be an aggregator at the top of the market. But the reality is right now, mineral prices are down and they'll probably trade down for a while from where they were at their high in 2018, 2019. And, uh, you know, we can talk about the nuances of that and why that is. But uh, until, you know, the debt market comes back for EMP guys to be able to borrow money to drill wells. You're just not going to have the activity, which is going to keep the prices a little lower in the mineral space. But, you know, prices, commodity prices are coming up. So we know it's going to get there at some point. You know, I love the idea, you know, if I'm a family office and I have $100 million dollars, to spend on energy in the US. I'm looking at some of these portfolios that are already put together, possibly even already have a team in place to manage them. You know, just buy them, think that I'm gonna hold them for, uh, you know, 12 to 24 months and sell them into a developing public market. I think that's a great strategy. And I don't know why, you know, a smaller public company trading on the Australian exchange can't do the same thing. Uh, As a matter of fact, that's actually a, a pretty elegant solution to playing the mineral space in the U S it would be silly for a group to come in and think that, Hey, we'll just go, you know, deploy our own ground game, put this together. But, you know, having one buyer and one seller makes that whole thing doable and makes it very easy. And I would seriously consider that if I were those guys.
0: The other thing too, that's just floating around is what's going to happen with capital gains rates and, and 1031 exchange potentially with Biden. And if, if you have a portfolio And you contribute the assets and then get stock you're not looking at getting a cash exit and then figuring out what to do from a tax perspective so contributing assets and and having these vehicles go public and then you have liquidity if you need it in a public vehicle is is an interesting play and i think that could be a a backdoor trigger for more public activity in this asset class as a result to you know government policy around Around capital gains, so I don't know. We'll see. It's a, uh, it's interesting. I, I just think the space is maturing, but it's also. It depends what lens you're looking at it, Jason. It's also so young, but when you look at guys doing simultaneous closes and making a killing, just tying stuff up, it's, it's old and mature from that standpoint. It's more efficient, but when you're looking at you know financial structurings and niches and everything, it's, it's very early days, and I, I just think it. It's just a fun space to be in. And no, I'm glad to see you're putting another vehicle together. I, I wish you luck with Mustang Ridge. And and again, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Any closing comments just to you know, leave something with the listeners before we wrap it up?
1: Yeah, I'd say if you have any deals in the Permian and they're uh, fairly priced, give me a call. I'm glad to talk about it. But I think that we are on the precipice of kind of getting back to work here and good times and deal-making in the Permian Basin, at least. And for everyone who just hung on and and is barely getting by, just hanging there a little bit longer. It looks like the market's starting to unfreeze and, you know, we'll see some good times and good prices again in the very near future. So I'm very optimistic. And if that's one thing I could leave a listener with is, you know, it looks like things are about to get a whole lot better. So uh, hang in there, get ready to get busy. I think it's all coming in the very near future.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks again, Jason. Appreciate you coming on.
1: Thank you, Tim. Thanks for your time.
0: Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The Minerals and Royalties Council represents the largest network of senior minerals and royalties-focused executives and investors in the world. Throughout the year, we leverage our relationships and industry knowledge to facilitate introductions on behalf of our royalties clients to help them place capital, buy and sell deals, and form new partnerships. If you're interested in learning more about how we can help your team, then please email me at tim.powell at energycouncil.com or visit our website at www.energycouncil.com forward slash minerals dash royalties dash council forward slash. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share these episodes with anyone in your network that you think would enjoy. Thanks and see you next time.